I welcome you here in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm glad you can stop in on this rest stop and be refreshed. That's, of course, thinking of life and the Christian life as a journey, as a trip that we're on. And we need uh, times of refreshing. And then there are other times when we have the strength to walk on and march on. And the church, of course, continues in the tradition of Israel as God's people. And so we use some of those analogies. So I invite you to stand, if you're able, and sing with us number 555, Marching to Zion. And uh, we're going to skip verse 3, and we're only going to sing the refrain at the end, for those who pay attention to such things. God, we thank you for being our destination, the one whom we are looking forward to seeing face to face. And we thank you that in the meantime, you also walk with us by your spirit and show us how to walk by the life of your son, Jesus. And so we are here today to acknowledge your presence and to thank you for it and to I offer you our praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Our call to worship is on the screen, and I invite you to read the parts that are in that color right there, which is kind of orange. So you'll start and end the call to worship, and in the middle, Agatha will read. So together, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. 
For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The next two songs we'll sing one after another, and you can just keep your eyes on the screen for the words.
pray. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are wonderful and we are not. We sometimes do well and then other times realize we have really not done well. We have been selfish. We're just unaware of other people's needs. And we pray that you would forgive us and make us more like yourself. Thank you for hearing our confession. We'll sing number 436, and we're going to skip verse 2, and again only sing the chorus after the last verse. did shed his blood so that we could be clean. God is faithful, and there is pardon for sin. Let's praise God for that with song number 43. We'll sing verses 1 and 3.
scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these, these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and, it will, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Good morning. Please bow with me now and we discuss, uh, dismiss little ones to Children's Church. Dear God, we thank you for the little ones of our congregation. We pray now that as they are in Children's Church that they will find themselves blessed. We also pray, bless the teachers, give them the words to say that stick with the little ones all their lives. And we put that in your hands. Amen. All right, down the hall, that way. This morning we have something uh, special on the docket just now, uh, and that is, is that, as you all know, later on we are going to be having a small congregational meeting to both transfer new members into the church as well as uh, to make them deacons. And so I would actually ask Gordon Christine to come up now. They're going to be sharing their testimonies with us this morning, that way we all get to hear about who they are and where they have been in their lives. All right. Um, most of you, I think, probably know me, Christine Murray, and uh, a little bit about our family. If you don't know, we have four children, and three of them are married, and we have two grandkids, a three and one-year-old, and one on the way. And, uh, but most of them live in Alberta, unfortunately, but no, no, that's... God has, God has plans, and we miss them there, but uh, that's where they're at. And Tyson and Kenzie, um, Tyson works for YFC, and he's here in McGregor. 
Um, so that's a little bit about our family. Um, but my faith journey started here in this church. And, um, you know, so I was, I was born and raised in this church, and I was baptized here, and I'm very grateful for a lot of, a lot of the people that um, were an integral part of my faith journey. And so it's really neat to be coming back, and um, yeah, so I'm really excited to see what God, is, what God has for us. Um, so part about my growing up, I'm, credi- I'm incredibly grateful for my parents, um, their faith, the faith and prayers of my mom and dad have made a, such a difference in my life. My mom taught me to pray and to pray really deeply. And my dad taught me the joy of giving and obedience to God. And they also taught me through serving. Um, and that's, they taught me through serving and how serving um, you grow and God. And when you listen to God and serve, um, he shows you many different things. And I'm very grateful that they taught me that. And it's also... Um, Something that we, as uh, when we parented our children, that we really strive for, that, you know, our children saw us as we served in the church. And um, uh, where am I here? Okay, as we serve, we grow. And sometimes it's a struggle. Um, it's a struggle with what, you know, trying to figure out what God's will is for me and throughout our different lives of different things that we've done. Um, it's always, okay, what is the next step? What does God want? But one quote that I came across that really kind of sticks out to me from Elizabeth Elliot is says, do you want to know the will of God? Then do the next thing. Sometimes we make it just way too complicated when God calls us to do something. Um, we need to do that next thing. And that's kind of how we try to work a life and what brought us here. And we're excited for what the next chapter of life holds for us as we serve in this church and in the community and um, what I'm really trying to work on in my life right now is to really have a deeper relationship with God and to be really listening to God. And so many times in the, fa- in the past, I felt God nudging me, and I resisted. I was a little too shy or embarrassed, didn't want to say that or talk to that person. And God has really been convicting me of how many times I've really missed out on the blessings God has for me. And I know when I step out, even when I'm apprehensive, um, the blessings that God gives, even though it can be really hard, is, um, is so amazing. Um, another quote from Henry Blackaby. I have been doing this devotion book. I've done it years ago, and I'm doing it again um, by Henry Blackaby. Is, there is no need to pray that God would come in power. The only way that, that is the only way he ever comes. We need hearts that are so responsive to him that he will choose to demonstrate his power through us. And um, that kind of, I was thinking about that as we were talking about even in Sunday school today, how much God has for us. We just need to be responsive to him. Um, some verses that um, I have written out on, I like to write out verses on prayer cards for me that helps me kind of stick into my head, is in Psalms 32. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And to me, I, I, need, I need a reminder of that because I can be really stubborn. And, um, and I'm just really grateful that God keeps directing me back. Even when I kind of go this way, God kind of keeps pulling me back to where he wants. And another one that I really like is um, there's been many times in my life when I didn't know how to pray I felt like my heart was too broken for the choices that a loved one was making. And, 
And this is a prayer that I would keep posting up on my wall in Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purposes for which I sent it. And that's just a, such a reminder to me that God, God is going to f- fulfill what he intends. And, um, and I just can keep praying that. And there's so many promises that he has promised. And I'm just going to believe that that's what God, God has said. And um, just one last verse that I really, really enjoy is, and it's a challenge for me, is in Hosea 10:12. So righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. And, yeah, those are some of my favorite verses, and I just, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to all that God has for us as we serve with you guys. Good morning. She's pretty amazing, isn't she? All right, some of you probably or may not know me much about me. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I uh, never actually knew anything really about church or God or anything until I was seven or eight years old and our neighbors would pick my sister and I up and take us to Sunday school and kids club and stuff. So other than a distraction and some fun, that was all that was to me. And it wasn't until I was just shy of 22 or 22, but in my early 20s that I decided that I was, I should go back to church. I should go to church and see what this is all about. And, and uh, so I did. And shortly after that, I met Christine and Shortly after that, we got involved in youth and kids club and um, stuff, and we've served pretty much uh, every capacity in the church except for business board and music. Um, so we, yeah, we jumped right in, and and it's been really, uh, I would say, difficult at sometimes what God has called us into, but it's also been incredibly rewarding. Um, that when we step out and say yes, God, we'll we'll do uh, we'll do what you're asking us. Um, he calls us into things and out of things uh, for a time, for a season, for a purpose, and we don't always understand that. And uh, especially these last few years has been kind of um, quite conflicting in our emotions, where God has called us into. Uh, leaving work and doing something different and then calling us back and forth and you just don't have any clue what God is actually doing. Uh, But we know that in our hearts we believe that's what he's calling us to, so that's what we do. Um, And that is why we're here, uh, because we believe in our hearts and all our being that God has called us to be a part of this church and to serve in our community and in in this body. And so we're excited about what happens next. We have no idea why or what the, you know, what that's going to look like. But we do know that in our hearts we believe that um, God has called us to be here. So I have a few verses bookmarked, um, and they're probably not verses that are would be typically shared in a testimony or whatever. Habakkuk one verse five. The Lord replied, look around at the nations, look and be amazed. 
For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe, even if someone told you about it. Um, and if we can't look back over the last five years and wonder, you know, what is going on, what is God doing, um, I think we have to change that focus. I think we need to look and be amazed at what God is doing. We may not always like it. We may not understand it. But God is working. God is moving. And uh, we're, a part of, we're a part of God's kingdom here on earth. And to me, there's no better place to be. And so that verse, I keep, I keep pulling that up every now and then just to remind myself that I got to look around. I got to open my eyes and, and uh, see what's going on. And the other, another verse is Zechariah 8.23. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. In those days, ten men from different nations and languages of the world will clutch at the sleeve of one Jew, and they will say, please, let us walk with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Um, that's an incredibly, uh, incredibly challenging verse that we are to live our lives in such a way that people know that God is with us and they want to be with us. There's a quote that uh, I also think about, uh, especially when it comes to, to church, to leadership, to community, and I'll try and remember it because I couldn't find it on my phone. Um, don't walk in front of me, or don't walk behind me, I may not lead. Do not walk in front of me, I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. And I think there's an awful lot of truth to that. I don't like being told what to do. I don't like it when people expect me to do things. Um, but we've seen in our own lives where people come alongside us when things are tough and are just there, that God works. And God works out uh, what church, what community should be. Um, so just in closing, um, our, my testimony is about what God is doing in our life, and that's that he's changing us, he's growing us, he's leading us, and sometimes he's correcting us, um, but we're excited to be where God wants us to be, and we believe it's here, and, and so we just look forward to being a part of your fellowship. God bless. Thank you very much. Again, a short membership meeting will happen after the service today. You don't need to be a member to stay. In fact, I encourage you one way or the other, uh, but look forward to it. All right, if you have your bulletins on you, pull them out. We have a number of things to point out today. The first is exactly what we said, short congregational meeting after the service today. Uh, next, at 2 p.m., Valley View Bible Camp. They're having their 60th anniversary celebration. Uh, my understanding is, is that even if you didn't RSVP, it should be fine to still go on down. So uh, 2 p.m. Uh, at Valley View today. Uh, Wednesday, 7 p.m., prayer meeting here at the church. Then next Sunday, 9.45 a.m. is Sunday school. And next Sunday also, 
Uh, at 6.30 p.m., there is going to be a small group kickoff at Jake and Agatha's house. We'll make sure to bring a lawn chair and a snack to share. It's going to be a great start to small groups this year. Skipping down, uh, September 28th, Donut Day fundraiser for the Food Vault. Uh, well, we've all been through it before. Just go down to where the CRC is. That's where you can get your donuts. They are always a wonderful thing. Uh, make sure to stick around. Talk to whichever the board members are there with Julie handing out the donuts. So uh, that's September 28th. Uh, also, if you have not signed up for small groups yet, there is a sign-up sheet on the back table. If you already are in a small group, then you're fine. But if you have not signed up for one yet, that is where you do it. Uh, if you have any questions, talk to Dakota Gunther. Uh, she can get you all sorted out. Uh, volunteers still needed for Kids Club. Just talk to Christine Murray. She'll be able to get you sorted out for that. Uh, even if you do not feel that you are in a place where you can be volunteering this year, we would ask that you put Kids Club on the list of things that you pray for pray for every week. That would be an absolutely wonderful thing to do. Uh, skipping, oh, not skipping down, this is just my own handwriting here. Uh, if any of you are early risers, there used to be a before school program in town for the kids uh, at the elementary school. Unfortunately, they can't run it this year because they don't have the people to actually man it. They were using university students during COVID and now university students are back at university, so unfortunately that doesn't work. So if you are the a person that wakes up before seven o'clock anyway, then that would be an interesting thing to volunteer for. There's at least six kids there that they need to be there because that's the only way their parents can get to work on time to provide for their families. So uh, if you are interested or if you know anyone else who would be interested, then let me know and I'll put you in touch or just contact Carla directly. Uh, and then finally, Henry has uh, an announcement that he wants to make. Coming to church here for many, for many years, and they had enough confidence with me not being a member here to elect me as a usher, which I accepted, and the Lord has really blessed me through it that I could serve the church in a capacity that I knew how I, that I could do. And I would thank, like to thank the whole congregation for their patience and their understanding and the way things have gone. It has been, it's been a real blessing to me to be an usher here. But this last Sunday was supposed to be my last Sunday, but things came up that I couldn't be here, so I thought I'd ask Russell if I could do it today. I would please ask you to pray for me, Agnes, and the whole Buford family. <laughs> because we're going through, through a very hard time right now in, in our children's family. So please pray for Michelle and Leonard and the family. It's, it's tough. Thank you. I just want to say... Thanks so much for serving as faithfully as you have. I know that I always appreciated seeing your face in the morning, so and I look forward to still as well, and we will certainly pray for your family and Michelle. Uh, is there any more announcements? All right. Uh, this one didn't quite make it into the bulletin, but I just want to throw out a save the date, November 19th. That's when we're planning on having the YFC fundraising banquet. So not any details right now, but... Mark it in your calendars, 
because I'm sure that'll be a busy time of season with getting close to Christmas and all sorts of other stuff. So I just want to throw that out there. Thanks. November 19th, YFC Banquet. All right. Then uh, let's skip down looking at our items for prayer. We want to pray for Evelyn as uh, they are beginning to wrap up their time in Paraguay. I think she comes back on the 25th. Tuesday, that's even before the 25th. So we definitely want to pray. We want to pray that the last couple days are good. We want to pray that the trip home is good as well. So let's pray for Evelyn Rogers and the entire prayer team. Uh, Let's also pray for Gordon Christine as they enter into this new role as deacons as well as become members. Let's pray for their ministry here at the church as well as in the rest of town as well. And also, uh, I found out on, I want to say, yeah, it was Thursday that Gwen Mangott passed away. Uh, And so we want to pray for her family as they prepare for the funeral. We want to pray... for them during this difficult time. Chances are the funeral is not going to be this week. It's going to be the week after. They're going to get in touch with us as soon as they pick a date. It largely is based around when family can come out. So Gwen Mangott and the, the whole family. And then, of course, for the Buchert family. So please bow with me now in a word of prayer. Oh, dear God, we come before you this morning, first off, in praise, hearing for how you have been at work. Lord, we are first off thinking of Gordon Christine. We are thinking of the wonderful testimonies that they gave, and we are thinking about all of the events that took place that led them here, and how your hand was in all of that. And God, we just pray, we pray thank you for how you are at work in all things. We pray thank you for how you have that eye to the future that we do not and that it works out in such wonderful ways. God, we pray for Gordon and Christine as they become members and as they enter into this new ministry as deacons, also as kids club, also with all of the other things that are going to happen. God, we pray be with them in this ministry. Bless them in it. Lord, we pray make yourself known to everyone around them through what it is you lead them to do. But again, thank you for how you have been at work and thank you for both of them and that willingness to follow you no matter what. Lord, that we put before you. And God, we also want to pray for Evelyn. God, we want to pray for her as she's in these last days in Paraguay before she heads home this Tuesday. God, we thank you for the ministry that they have had there so far. We thank you for the seeds that have been planted through their prayer. We thank you for the people that they have met, and we thank you that everyone that you have put in their way. And God, now as they look to come home, we pray that that is a good, a good couple flights. We pray for safe travels. We pray that it is comfortable as well, and we also pray that when she gets home, There will be wonderful stories to share. We also want to pray for Rolf and Angela as they come home. God, pray, bless them as well, flying with kids. God, we put all of this before you, as well as we put the rest of the Paraguayan mission field before you as well. We bless all of the churches down there, Travis and Rosie in particular. 
God, we look forward to seeing how you work through them over the months to come because of this trip. And God, we also want to put before you things that are harder to take. We want to put before you the passing of Gwen Mangat. Lord, as the family now looks to prepare for the funeral, God, make it easy to happen. Put everything in the way so that when the day comes, the memories will flow and it'll be a blessed time. God, we pray for the family and we pray for everyone involved. Be their rock during this time and in some way, point the way back to yourself. And at the same time, God, we want to pray for the Buchert family. Lord, we want to pray first and foremost a thank you for all of the years of faithful service that Henry has had. We want to thank you for his smiling face when we walked in the building. We want to thank you for how he is always interested to know how you were doing. We want to thank you also for the blessing that Agnes has been to our congregation over the years. That willingness for conversation, God, we put them before you and say thanks. But we pray for their family now. They're going through this difficult time. We're thinking particularly now of Michelle. It has been a hard road dealing with her cancer. God, we continue to pray, be with her. We continue to pray, make yourself known in this situation in whatever way it is that that needs to happen. God, we, we're running out of words, but at the same time, we put it before you knowing that you have them when we do not. God, we pray for the Buchard family. All of these things we put before you today, all of these things we place at your feet. And for all of these things, we look forward to seeing how you will work. Amen. And now we're going to look at another of the traditions of the church, asking ourselves, why do we do that? Why do we do that, particularly the way that we do that? Last week, we looked at communion, asking those questions. And this week, baptism. We're going to be zooming over an awful lot. I'm going to say that right here. So, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to go in great depth with everything. I say, unfortunately, this is the type of thing I get a kick of you. But we're going to get a good feeling for it all the same. So we open our Bibles, Matthew 3. I have it written down here. And as we open our Bibles to this passage that we deal with a number of times in the church calendar, usually every January, but we are met by an eccentric, if there ever was an eccentric in the Bible, and that's saying something, there's a number of wonderfully eccentric people and characters in the Bible. But we are met by John the Baptist. And he is a man who is said to be the, the prophesied one who will make clear the way for the coming 
Lord. It says that in this passage even further down. John the Baptist, he lives in the wilderness, and does anyone know what river he lives by? Oh yeah, the Jordan River? That's what I'm hearing? That is exactly the right answer. And that's actually important to this story because there is another story that takes place by the Jordan River, actually a couple, but the one that's important to baptism is in 2 Kings chapter 5. You don't need to turn there, but you'll probably know the story when I start saying it. There's a man named Naaman that you're going to find in that story. And he had leprosy, and it was terrible. It was death's door for him. And he wanted nothing more to be healed by it. And so somebody convinces him to go and see a local prophet named Elisha. And the prophet says, go and bathe yourself in the Jordan River, the muddy, mucky Jordan River, seven times. Naaman doesn't quite know what that's all about. Elisha, on the other hand, very much so does, as if you look through the books of the law, there's all sorts of places where it talks about how ceremonial bathing will cleanse you from your uncleanness, leprosy being one of the things that can make you unclean. And so he does it begrudgingly anyway, realizing there's no possible alternative. And then down he goes once, twice, three times, and then on the seventh he comes up and he is cured, he is clean, he is cleansed. Might be interesting to know that the word baptize actually means to cleanse. But that is the same Jordan River that John the Baptist is standing by in our story today. The same river that John the Baptist is baptizing countless people that come to him. And as they come to him, he tells them this same thing. Repent and be baptized because soon the time of the Lord is at hand. And so you get this understanding straight from the beginning that what baptism is, it's tied up in this idea of being cleansed. Also that John the Baptist is somebody that is going to make clear the way for the Lord and how he does this is through baptism. That should be noted when we're trying to understand what baptism is all about as well. Making clear the way for the coming Lord. And then one day, who should show up but that coming Lord himself that John was foretelling about, Jesus Christ which John was like, why should I baptize you? If anything, it should be the other way around, to which Jesus answers that he is doing this now to fulfill all righteousness. That is, Jesus is choosing to be baptized now before he starts on his ministry because that is the right first thing to do. That is how Jesus' ministry to build the kingdom of heaven is to begin. And because we Christians are called to follow the model of our Lord and Savior, that is how our ministries are to begin as well, by being cleansed from that which came before, left free to follow God. And as Jesus emerges from the water, We see the Father, we see the Son, we see the Holy Spirit come together. We see those whose names that we are baptized for, as well as we see who is waiting to claim all who make this decision in their own life as well. 
Matthew 3. But that isn't the only place where the Bible talks about baptism, not by a long shot. In fact, a lot of the very important things come from later on, from the book of Acts. And there we find a particularly important passage, right uh, in Acts 2, a passage we talked about last Sunday as well. There is the story when the apostles are in a room and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and is poured upon them, poured, it says in verse 33 of chapter 2. And now Peter stands speaking to all the people gathered before him in Jerusalem, and he, he tells them about Jesus as he will many times over the rest of his life as well. Peter being baptized by the Spirit, and now he begins preaching like there's no tomorrow. And as Peter ends his message, he calls on the people that are gathered before him to, like John the Baptist preached many times before, to repent and be baptized. But Peter now also adds on a new twist to that as well. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Christ, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, is what Peter says here. And as he does, he kind of links that idea of salvation to baptism itself. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Then we go forward to chapter 16. There's another couple examples of baptism, but if we're really wanting to just look at what a case we're going to build for what we understand baptism to be, then chapter 16 is the important one. And there we find Paul and Silas in prison. And there is a mighty earthquake that comes. And all the doors are rent open. But Paul and Silas, even though the opportunity to break out, do a prison break. Is it even a prison break if all the doors are open? That I don't know. But they have the opportunity to leave there. But they stay behind. The warden, when he comes in, is so absolutely positive that all the prisoners escaped under his watch that he is considering self-harm. But they are like, no, don't do that. We are still here. The warden is so moved that he invites them to his house. And he converts then, and his entire household converts. And then his entire household, we are told, are baptized as well. That's all just in the book of Acts. Then we come to the writings of Paul, which also have a lot to say about baptism. In Romans 6, Paul is describing how believers should think of their baptize, baptism by describing it as sharing in Christ's resurrection. As you go down into the water, it's like you're dying to your old self, only to be raised again when you emerge as Christ was raised. Then in Galatians 3, Paul talks of baptism like it's being clothed in Christ, that is, clothed in the immortal that will not perish, that will not pass away. That's a common thing that Paul talks about. Again, Paul draws a short line between baptism and salvation as he talks about it in these two passages. And finally, we come to Colossians 2. And there, Paul describes baptism like the counterpart to circumcision, but instead for the new covenant that we have made in Jesus Christ. 
While in the old covenant that you can read about at some point in Genesis 17, that's made between Abraham and God, circumcision, that was how you showed that you were a part of that covenant. But now that we have a new covenant in Christ's blood, baptism is how we show this covenant to those around us instead. As we are baptized, it is a declaration to the entire world that we are Christ's followers. And this shows an equality that exists in the new covenant, an equality that exists in baptism. Because kind of by definition, circumcision is only for half the population, but baptism, all are called to that. It also shows that in baptism, you're joining into a new community as well because you are joining into the new covenant. You are being initiated into the new covenant. You are declaring yourself a part of the new covenant when you are baptized, the same as all others who have made that decision as well, now all together in Christ's church through baptism. And while more is said about baptism throughout Scripture, from these passages alone, we get a pretty good handle about what it is and what it means. Baptism is about cleansing the old life away to make way for the new now. Baptism is about making way for God to build his kingdom through us. Baptism is about being claimed by God, our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is about showing the world that we are God's people, and so it is about joining his church as well. And in some way, baptism is tied to our very salvation itself. And just like with communion, though, from that idea, we get an awful big picture of what baptism is. But like with all church traditions that go back thousands of years, while the scriptural basis tells us a lot about what baptism is, church history has informed our understanding of this practice quite a bit as well. And when it comes to the church's history with baptism, it's kind of been dominated an awful lot by two different arguments that actually stick with us and are actually a bit of a thorn in the side of the church even to this day. The first is about the mode about how baptism happens and how it should be performed. And the, the, the second, and the far more important of the two, that's about who can receive it. As to the mode for how baptism should be performed, unlike today, the early church was largely on the same page on this front. That is the baptism by immersion. That's the preferable way to be baptized. We know this from a book called the Didache. Didache? I don't read Latin. It's a writing, it's a collection of writings from the early church, and that's the case that they make, that immersion is preferable. This method, it seems to be the common one in scripture. Jesus was immersed, as was Naaman. So if possible, go with that. But the early church was very different than the church today in many ways. And one of those is that it was an extremely, extremely practical-minded bunch of people. And soon there later, they were making a strong case for other kinds of baptism as well. After all, was it not said that Peter in that room when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him had the Spirit 
poured out on him. And so, clearly, another form of baptism, that is by pouring, that has some amount of scriptural basis as well. And the form of baptism and what that would take, whether it be immersion or pouring or semi-immersion or sprinkling, there's a lot of them. To the early church, that was just a secondary thing. It was not as important as getting as many people baptized as possible. And given that they were being persecuted by Rome at the time, well, you're probably not always going to have an instance where a good group of people can get together in a big body of water to be fully immersed. But what you do always have is a cup of water that you can drink out of. And so, I would say that that decision makes an awful lot of sense. There are many examples of people being baptized in prisons with nothing more than a cup of water from that period of time during the persecution. It's not an uncommon thing even today in areas of the church where persecution still runs rampant. I get it. But as I said, the idea of getting so held up on the correct mode of baptism as to invalidate or not count people as Christians if they do it wrong in your eyes, that is a much newer phenomenon that simply didn't exist throughout most of the church's history to the extent that it does today. Don't get me wrong, there's, there's always been pockets of Christians that made the mode of baptism a real sticking point for them, but it being as widespread a belief like it is today, among particularly groups of full immersion denominations, that, that is much more recent. Even amongst those same denominations, that is much more recent. Like within hundreds of years. That might sound like a long time, but in the history of a church, that's a drop in the bucket. But as to the second and much bigger discussion that has been with the church throughout its history with baptism, that has to do with instead who is allowed to be baptized. Namely, are infants allowed to be baptized? There is a biblical case to be made for baptizing infants. It mostly revolves around that passage about Paul and Silas and the warden's whole household being baptized. Because households of that era usually contained multiple families as well as families of slaves and families of servants, it is extremely unlikely that the warden's household didn't have infants or children in it. Unlikely to the point that if it didn't, probably they would have noted that. And so that the passage doesn't say that children were excluded means likely they weren't. But even if that is a weak argument, in your mind, then truth be told, the real reason why infant baptism took hold in the early church is less really a scriptural one than a pastoral one anyway. We have seen a number of passages today that tie salvation very closely to baptism, including the, the, the passage that we read this morning, Matthew 3, where it talks about being tossed into the fire with the winnowing fork. Peter says that if you are baptized, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in Acts 2 as well. Paul says that in baptism we are clothed in Christ and then we join him in his resurrection. 
There is undeniably a close connection that is made between baptism and salvation throughout the New Testament, to the point that throughout most of church history, it was simply assumed that to be saved meant that you had to be baptized. So here's the question I ask you. What do you do with that belief if you live in a society where infant mortality is north of 50%? It's mainly because of this very, very legitimate pastoral question, more than anything else, that infant baptism first entered church history and within its very early years. And while even in those early days there were people who opposed the idea of infant baptism because the stronger case scripturally it's always been for baptism as a confessing adult, a combination of practicality and statistics ultimately won out in making infant baptism nearly the only way that the church baptized people for centuries. All branches of the church, they have always baptized adults This is true today as it was back then. All branches of the church have always baptized adults. But eventually, the church grew to the point where there were no more adults in the area the church was to baptize. And then you're just left with the infants. And so by matter of time and the seeking to answer that profoundly pastoral question, in a caring and loving way. You end up in the ballpark of where Catholic practice rests today, where almost all baptisms they perform are on infants, at least in North America. You go to different areas of the world where the Catholic Church is growing by leaps and bounds, you might have a very different opinion. But then there was a whole reformation that happened, and uh, Half generation after that, there was a man named Zwingli, and who he is and what he is all about, that's a very large topic for a different day. But for now, we see that he thought about baptism in a very different way than the Catholics did. Instead of baptism being primarily about salvation, to Zwingli, baptism was instead, first and foremost, about church membership. He saw that passages about baptism being like about the circumcision bit that Paul hits on. And he really hammered the importance of that idea that baptism is the new circumcision. Baptism is the entrance into the new covenant, is the sign that you are in the new covenant. He really hammered that idea home. And so does Vingley, the reason that you were baptized was because That's how you became a member of the church. And so the problem with salvation that the Catholics were dealing with, Zwingli largely just kind of sidestepped that. Albeit in a way that is a little bit of a cop-out because Zwingli, his idea of salvation is very much so tied up with if you are a member of the church in the first place. So it shouldn't surprise you that he's also very big, very pro-infant baptism himself. But to this day, some mix of these two understandings of baptism is the underpinning of the Anglicans. It's the underpinning of the Reformed traditions. It's an underpinning of a large amount of all of the English traditions, Methodists and Episcopalians, united. I should note that all these churches that practice infant baptism, they do have confirmation classes 
that you need to take before you become a full member with full privileges, but you are a member from the moment of your baptism, regardless of your age. And that's a very inviting thing. Also, if you're baptized as an infant and then you take those confirmation classes, there's even a couple of churches in our conference even that will accept that as okay for membership transfer. But it is now that we arrive finally with our own forefathers, the first Anabaptist. And here I do mean the first Anabaptist, Conrad Grable. He was one of Zwingli's students, actually, but he, he was not a big fan of how Zwingli stopped in his exploration of baptism where he did. For Grable, looking at his Bible, he kept coming back to how it seemed that only ever adults were baptized and upon a confession of their faith to boot. And so he and his group of friends one night, they decided that they were going to rebaptize one another in a kitchen of all places, which means pouring. The word Anabaptist actually means re-baptize. This was a highly illegal thing to do at that time because baptismal records were used by the state to figure out all sorts of things like censuses and taxes and military conscriptions. So there was a bunch of laws against re-baptizing, but it was the start of Anabaptism all the same in a, in a kitchen. The Anabaptists held like they did in time with communion as well, that baptism is not what saves you from your sins, but instead it's a, it's a symbolic sign of the fact that you were already saved through your relationship with Christ. After all, John says, repent and be baptized, two separate terms. Eventually, this idea would evolve in some of the denominations to the point where you now have the sinner's prayer as being the initiation into being a Christian. But for most of Anabaptist history, just personal repentance and recognition, you're a follower of Christ, in whatever form that took, that was enough. And it was after that recognition was made that you chose to be baptized at some point down the road as a sign to declare to all of the world that this is who you are, that this is who you are all about, that you are for Christ. And as to those too young to comprehend enough to make that decision well enough to make it, like, say, infants, the idea of the age of accountability became a really big thing. They didn't come up with that concept, but they really hammered it home. It was not until you could know what it was that you were doing that you could be held accountable for it. And before that, the grace of God surely would suffice. Either way align closest with this view of baptism you have, the Anabaptists, Mennonites, Hutterites, most of the terms that end with it. You have your Baptists, you have many charismatic denominations as well. Although all the branches of the church at this point have some mixing of these three broad views of what baptism is. So what does the EMC think baptism is today? Well, in our statement of faith, you can read the following. We believe a Christian should be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, following a personal recognition of and repentance from sin, and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, 
Water baptism represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the time of conversion and the washing of regeneration, which the believer has experienced. It is an act of obedience which identifies the believer with the church of Christ. On top of this, the EMC minister's manual says that baptism is to be done in obedience to scripture, that it symbolizes death to sin and joining Christ's new life, being born into his body, added to his church. Spiritual cleansing and the forgiveness of sins and it symbolizes the Holy Spirit coming into believers at the time of conversion. All of these beliefs we have seen pretty readily from the passages we looked at today. The manual then proceeds to lay out that all people looking to be baptized should go through some form of baptismal prep classes so that they can make sure that what they believe Christianity is is on the up and up. Then when the time comes to be baptized, there are a number of questions asked about the beliefs the candidate has. Typically, a testimony is given at the same time as well, cementing that whole, they're being baptized upon confession of their faith bit. And then the candidate is baptized by another baptized believer, usually a pastor, minister, deacon, something like that. Although many of our traditions, many of our congregations, it's just a believer of their choice as long as they've already been baptized so they can initiate the new person into the new covenant. And they're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as they emerge, they are welcomed into the church body. And as to the question of mode of baptism, our conference in particular has recently chosen to follow in the mold of the early church, baptizing by either pouring or immersion, up to the preference of the candidate, really. That is new, though, as historically, like Conrad Grable in that kitchen, the EMC have been bigger fans of pouring, just as many Mennonite denominations are to this day. Uh, but they gave way to include immersion over the past few decades. This was done for a combination of reasons tied to either belief. Uh, I mean, we really think that baptism is a symbolic thing, so it's kind of weird that we'd get really hung up on that in the first place. But probably even bigger is for practical reasons, namely because there are a number of denominations that we are closely connected to that have decided that immersion is the only true way that you can possibly do it. And so if we hold again that the mode doesn't overly matter, why let this be an issue that keeps us from breaking bread with other congregations? There is one way that the EMC does certainly borrow from the Zwingli folk, though. In the EMC, we have always, as best as I can tell, tied church membership to baptism. In most of our churches, when you are baptized, you are baptized into the membership of that congregation. And we do this for the same reasons that Zwingli was a fan of it as well, because if baptism is the sign of joining into the new covenant, then inherent in that is the joining with all other people in that same covenant as well. It's the joining of the church. Although when I say that, I should also note that this very local understanding of what church membership is, 
is also a relatively modern understanding in the grand scheme of church history. In scripture, there is an awful lot about being a member of the church in a big sense, but throughout most of history, people didn't leave the town they were born in. And so the idea of not just being part of the church, but being part of one individual church, that that really wasn't of consequence one way or the other. It isn't until after feudalism falls and people start traveling all over the place and you get the Reformation and suddenly there's competing churches in the same area that the idea of individual church membership really begins to matter. But what being a member of a local church means, that that did exist before our concept of being a formal member of it did. Be a member of a church is to commit to give to it with your resources, your time, your gifts, and experience. It is to work to build the kingdom of God through it and its ministries to the area around you. It is to be involved in its governance as applicable and in addressing the needs of its congregation. In the EMC, this is a formal designation that is entered into in many of our churches upon baptism or transfer in. But in all churches, this concept of what it means to be a member of the local church, that exists, whether membership is formal or not, because there is no concept in the Bible of a Christian who just is kind of there. To be Christian is to follow as God leads, is to be a member of the church, be it formally or not. This is, this is what it means to be in Christ's church. But after saying all of this, and I can see eyes glazing over as mine did as well, there's an awful lot of information there, but this is an important part of what it means to be Christ church, that we have these sacraments, that we do communion, that we have baptism. It's what ties our congregation to the others around us. It's what ties our congregation to those before us, all the way back to the apostles in Jesus itself, himself. One thing I particularly like about how our church does baptism, probably most of you know this, is that baptismal tank that we get. That's not actually our tank. It's Austin's tank. And when they're done with it and West End needs to have a baptism, that's where the tank goes. When Baggett needs a baptism, that's where the tank goes. In a very real way, all the believers of McGregor coming together through baptism, and there's something wonderful about that. But after saying all of this, I suppose this is where I want to leave it today. If you're not baptized and you wish to be so, consider it. Regardless of whether your salvation is tied to baptism or not, there there is something in that declaration that sets us as believers on the path that we need to be on to make clear the way for the Lord, just like John the Baptist did. I kind of think that all too often we wonder if baptism is mostly a symbolic thing, if we're saved by our repentance of sin and our recognition that we're following Christ. If that's what saves us and baptism is just a symbolic thing, then why, why would we do it in the first place? There's a lot of power in symbolism, though. I mean... Think of weddings, or think of 
how you go through, if you're going to transfer, not transfer, immigrate to a different country, how you go through all the classes, learn all the things, do all of this checklist. And then it's on the day itself when they have a ceremony. That's when you are now a new citizen. It's symbolic, but there's power in symbolism. Far from not mattering, it's a profound consequence for our walk with God, so much so that we are commanded to do, commanded to be baptized in his word straight from the beginning of the church's existence itself. It's the first act that Jesus does before his ministry begins. So if you have not been baptized, consider it. Come talk to me. I love having that conversation. And at the same time, if you are interested in becoming a member, as we are about to see Gordon Christine become today, come talk to me about that as well. I'd love to have that conversation with you about what that means because in this declaration that this is my church and I will build Christ's kingdom in McGregor and Austin and North Norfolk through it, there is the power of the Holy Spirit on full display in that as well. Amen. Our closing song is number 376. It's, it's a musical version of what Russell has been talking about. Faith and declaration of faith. Once again, I'd invite you all to almost fall over. Once again, I invite you all to stay out for the congregational meeting that's going to happen immediately after the service. Also, interesting thing, next week, Sheldon uh, is going to be on deck to preach for us. So that is going to be a wonderful time as well. Look forward to that. But for our benediction, we turn to the book of Hebrews. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. 
working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go now and serve our God. Will you decide?